1989, a movie was released by the name of Glory. It's a celebration. It's a tr- based on a true story. It's a celebration of a little-known act of mass courage during the Civil War. It's the story of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, one of the first African-American units. From its creation to its first major action, the story is told. The regiment was the first black regiment in the Union to secure a foothold at Charleston Harbor. The fighting unit was composed of free blacks who enlisted and disregarded the threat that any blacks captured during the Civil War and their white officers would be immediately executed. The attack was launched at dusk on July the 18th, 1863. The battle nearly won, reaching the rifle pits in the outlying area around the fort there on Morris Island, and it was a huge fortification. 600 feet wide, sand, 30 feet in height. Battle, though, nearly won, there was a sudden turn of events as the Confederate Army artillery trained their fire on the oncoming 54th Volunteer Infantry. However, though there was defeat, the courage demonstrated by the 54th resulted in the Union accepting thousands of black men for combat in the Union Army. President Lincoln credited them with helping to turn the tide of the war. Glory, it's the name of the movie. What was it? It was the heroic action taken by African-American infantry who had had to overcome racism and discrimination in order to lay down their lives on the battlefield for the just cause of the Union in the war between the states. Are you in John chapter 2? I want you to look at it. Let's do a little drone effect first. If you have the passage in the Bible that's in your lap and you're looking over it, I want to call your attention to just a brief frame around this story. This is, as you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that there are a number of these occasions that John has selected as the signs that Jesus performed. If you look down to the 11th verse and you heard it in the reading, thank you for that excellent reading, Steve. You gave the inflection right where they needed to be. (laughs) And that word sign appears. We'll look at that a little more later on, but you want to key on that, but you also want to key on the word glory. Glory. That is critical. Now, with that look at the 11th verse, back up and come up to the first uh, two verses. Now, we're told what we need to know here to appreciate how this is the first sign that Jesus performed. You'll notice that it is said is on the third day. This is not irrelevant minutia. When John, by the Holy Spirit, tells us these things, he wants us to follow a track of thought. Sometimes it doesn't always meet the eye, but he's been tracking this one, two, three days. It's, it's the third day. It's, it's the day after he had called Nathaniel. That was an interesting encounter. You know, Philip calls, uh, Nathaniel says, come, we found, we found someone you need to meet. <laughs> and Jesus sees him coming and says, I saw you under the fig tree. How did you know that? Well, Jesus let him know by that act of prescience, seeing beforehand, that there was something more to Jesus than met the eye. 
He was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Oh, the disciples had a long way to go with that. But it, it began to sink in little by little. That was one of the first experience. But it's this third day. Now, it's important also to remember when this happens. If you're trying to think of the life of Christ and the events in his life, we can't walk through them all, but we can easily go through what the Gospels have focused on already in his public ministry. There was, first of all, there was Jesus' baptism, followed by the temptation, 40 days, night in the wilderness. And then Cana. Interesting connection. And so here we are then with, these, with the disciples. By this time, Jesus has at least five of the disciples with him. He's picked them out. They're following him. Now this little town of Cana, I've been to the land of Israel a couple of times, didn't get to Cana. All as close as I got was to look out the bus window and say, it's over there. <laughs> it's about nine miles north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Oh, okay, that's relevant. Probably folks he knows, he knew were there in Cana. And then we are also told, that's the obvious here, that this is a wedding. Now, wedding feasts in the time of Jesus were not like our wedding receptions today, you know, with finger food and well, sometimes you might get some barbecue, you might really get a good layout, but actually they're really well-controlled, well-confined, and we kind of like them to stay within oh, a couple of hours or so. You've got people got to come clean up, so let, let's get in, get out, and get on. Uh, not the way with the wedding feast. It's, that word feast is important. You have to understand something about the way weddings functioned in that day. They were big events. And the center of attention was not, sorry ladies, was not the bride. It was the groom. The groom would uh, gather those, uh, his friends with him, and then he would march out with torchlight in the evening, and he would march to the bride's house. She would be ready, and she would accompany him and go back to his place. Then, upon his arrival, there would be the onset of a wedding reception. Big deal. I mean, it could last three to five days. Uh, in this one, you could have had maybe 50 to 100 people at least. And the host, the groom, would have been responsible for providing food and drink for everyone during that time. You'd better be ready with a checkbook. <laughs> and so the whole community would come in. I mean, people knew one another. They weren't like we are today, living in these electronically defended uh, cubicles that we come out of occasionally. But people were out in the open and talking at the well and so forth, and they knew one another. And so they were gathered. People would come in. It's like a big block party. And here is where we are with this wedding feast then. Could have been on a Wednesday. They say often weddings uh, were on a, a Wednesday. Now, I want you to follow a movement through this story. I'm the hero of the story. That's not hard to get. You didn't miss that, I hope. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I have introduced him, and as I will, he is the creator of the universe in disguise. you got to like that element. You ever like those kinds of movies where someone is in disguise and they do and say things that, and you know what those people don't know. <laughs> and raises your attention. Well, here is the Lord Jesus Christ then. Watch the creator of the universe. The very first thing, I want, the movement in this glory unfolding, the very first movement is that here is the creator of the universe manifesting his glory in happy social occasions. I want to say a few things about it. It's really part of the setting, but you need to appreciate how he entered into these uh, big parties, if you will. That what's happening here, of course, we're going to get to Mary's request. Uh, she turned to Jesus. 
Maybe I ought to say something right here about why did she do this? Well, you know, a mama is a mama. <laughs> and she, she watched Jesus. She gave birth to him. She heard his first cries. He suckled on her breast. She saw him take her first. I saw a little one up here taking some steps. You know, they just go like this. Find their legs. She watched baby Jesus, little boy Jesus, find his legs. And she, she had all those experiences for all those years. The Bible doesn't tell us much about those years, but you understand that, that special chemistry a mother has with her son. But she's asking him something here. I think possibly, you know, some things... John the Baptist has been preaching. He's been saying, Behold, the Lamb of God! Mary... She knew some things, and she's kind of filling out her own blank spaces in, this, in her Christology. <laughs> what have I, who have I given birth to? I think she had some knowledge. But you know, there was, with this, there was always that degree of social embarrassment associated with the fact, with the manner in which Jesus, or the time he was born, born like any other baby but out of wedlock that was a high degree of social embarrassment say the least so she knew about his supernatural birth how he was conceived and her life had been up to that point about 30 years lived under suspicion you think can, did a lot of people believe her story yeah, you know what they say. <laughs> she said, Holy Spirit came. Can you get that? So she had all that to contend with for 30 years. So maybe she's looking for a little vindication here. I want you to see who he is. And she did have some knowledge if you read Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. All right, so we've got that little brief visit to Mary's Christology at this point. But then you notice that it said they have no wine. Faux pas. Big social faux pas. It seems that Mary may very well have expected a miracle here. She wants some... Uh, I came upon this statement when I was working through this, and it's kind of a paraphrase of what could have... The idea of... They have no wine, therefore, this is a beautiful occasion for you to prove yourself to be the promised Messiah, as I know you are. Oh, okay, I think there's something to that. And so here she is, wanting him to come in and take care of the problem. And, you know, we parents, we do have a little bit of struggle, don't we, when our children kind of begin to come out into adult life and that little transition, like, what are you going to be when you grow up? And the choices that you begin to be with school that you're interested in. And then you decide not to go to that school. Or you get that degree. And then you decide, I don't want to do that. You know, you go through a lot of stuff like that. So Mary is, she's human. And she's going through those kinds of things. But I want to notice, I want you to notice again that Jesus chose to manifest his glory in this happy social occasion. Jesus loved happy times and groups and celebrations. You can't miss that when you go through the Gospels. And he was no gloomy monk, an ascetic. That, no. Just hanging out in a cave out in the desert who would occasionally come in and give some thunderous message and say, Repent for the wrath of God is at hand. Well, he did a form of that, sure. But Jesus was a, he was a social person. And he knew the importance of coming into uh, community events and happy times and just being there. I read an interesting story. If I just, uh, just briefly, I need to pause this because... I, some of us can think that maybe Christians, we have a hard time seeing how joy and delight can come and fitting in to some 
occasions in life. I read this story. Actually, I read it in James Boyce has some uh, sermons on the Gospel of John. And a friend of his told him this story. At that time, his friend was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And he had been invited to come speak to this youth group. It was a a banquet. And so he did. And he spoke to the banquet uh, of the gospel of Christ and then to be followed by discipleship and thinking that, you know, these kids would understand the significance of that in view of the nature of their group. It was a church-related meeting banquet. Well, he finished, and then he was, after we preachers get through with those things, we kind of think, well, I need to get on out of here and get home. But then he thought, well, he realized, found out that actually this banquet was just the prelude to a big party. I mean, big. Where they began to talk and the noise level went up and he made the decision to, okay, uh, let's not leave, let's get into it. And he did and he ended up, uh, a young lady came up to him and the noise level was so high. I've been in these situations, you know, you're almost right, uh, your ears up to the mouth almost trying to hear because everybody's making so much noise. And so they're kind of shouting at one another. And she, this young girl, turned out that she was kind of the leader of this group. And she was uh, interested in what he, the speaker, had said. And she began to ask him. And he had the opportunity to go through the gospel message, clarifying, saying it again. And she trusted Christ. Now, I don't know where it was right there in the middle of all the noise or not, but she did. And what came of that is he found out that this group, this, these people were mostly nominally Christian, and they were there just for the fun and the party, but here was this young lady, and she became a believer, and as a result of that, she began to have in conversations with her friends. She, uh, many came to Christ, but at the age of 25, she was a college student at that time, but at the age of 25, she died with a cerebral hemorrhage. And her funeral was electrifying in its significance and that many came and heard and many had believed. And one of the young men who was in that group, who, he, he, put, he had put his trust in Christ and out of that, he became singularly a very important person and bringing witness to others. Went on to Christian ministry, I believe. Sometimes you need to stay for the party. (laughs) You don't know. And, well, Jesus stayed for the party. And here he is. Now, notice the next movement of glory here. This next movement is here is the creator of the universe. He comes to this earth to do the Father's will, but he he manifests his glory in following the Father's timing. Did you get this in the text? Look, I want to walk you through some things here. Look at the text. First of all, notice how Jesus speaks to his mother. He says, woman. Uh, Now, does that bring you a little short? If I had talked to my mother, and she asked me to do something, And I'd say, woman, I can guarantee you, knowing my mother, Louise, (laughs) I would have been in some serious trouble. But it's not like that. You you have to have been there. You need to. There's a tone. There is a custom. There's an understanding. There's a relationship. There's one uh, source I read that it it was just, it, it was an expression of polite distance. Aha important distance, that she, Mary, did not fully understand the purpose of the work that he was doing. And she was not in on this timetable quite yet. There was a timetable. 
And also, there's a new relationship that exists between Mary and Jesus. And what his reply does is it takes a bit, it takes it forward. You remember that statement that was made to Mary, that, yea, a sword shall pierce through thy soul also? Mary's natural relationship to her son, making a request out of that, that day's over. Now, we parents, that's another aspect of that time of life. When do you stop giving instructions and let them <laughs> do what they're going to do when they get to that adult age? Well, anyway, so the time was coming. We've got to look a little, little forecasting here. It, it helps to look down the road. That the time is coming when all believers are going to call on Jesus in prayer. And that's, that's the kind of transition that's taking place here. When Jesus would say, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So here is where then Jesus said his hour is not come. Now what's this hour? If you went on through the Gospel of John you would find it on, after this on three other occasions. What's the hour? What is it? The hour is the time of his crucifixion, his death on the cross. That is why he came. He didn't come to simply relieve uh, the pressure of social embarrassment, though he did that. And so... Jesus is pointing toward his death even in the midst of joy at a social happy party gathering. And death is on his mind. It is. As someone has said, he never took his eye off the ball. He kept that thought. And so here then is this request that she makes. You know, and let's say this for Mary. She is going to lose him as her physical son. But do you know what she's going to get? She's going to find him as Savior. Mary needed a Savior. Did, you knew that, did you? You haven't been, you, I hope you haven't been swept away by some of the, the sentimental portrayal often. Jesus, Mary holding Jesus at the cross, the foot of the cross. Mary's like the dominant and Jesus is the, is the passive suffering one. This comes out of some bad theology that began to develop. What is true here is that she's going to find him as her savior. And perhaps she has. All right, but she's concerned about the shortage of wine. And, but her schedule and her priorities are not Jesus. That's the point that's being made. I need to say one matter here of, with regard to thinking about Needs and problems. I think it helps. It's, it, it's more than a footnote. It's, I think, a necessary understanding of what's happening here in relation to our perception and the way we respond to problems. Jesus was always relating whatever he was doing to his redemptive work. Are you with me on that one? Always. Now, I didn't say he was, he was gloomy and didn't laugh and didn't enter into normal social activities. But I'm saying this, that when Jesus saw a need, like this, the need for wine, immediately it's related to what? His, the will of the Father to carry that out for the redemptive work that Christ had come to perform. Here's my point. I have to learn something in my afflictions, my challenges, my problems, my difficulties. It may be a social difficulty like this, that you suddenly, if I may, and I don't, I'm not trying to trivialize this kind of thing, it may be that you suddenly find out that your own social schedule is seriously interrupted. Maybe companies said they're, they're coming. Oh, my Let's get to Kroger and Publix real quickly, and let's, uh, let's get to place, oh, and then the husband, he knows when you get into that mode, you better get in that mode too, 
that let's get ready for company. But wait a moment. Here's a point of truth here. That all requests and issues that arise and create needs and their problems, that the need by them, needs by themselves do not represent the total picture. Did, you, you have that? They don't represent the total picture. Don't get caught up in the moment so much, the problem, the need, whatever it may be. could be that you just got a phone call from the doctor you did not, with results that you didn't want. But whatever, is that whatever I decide to do must be based upon God's all-wise, sufficient word to me in that situation. You may have to go get in a corner <laughs> somewhere and say, Lord, whew, things are just suddenly going wild here. Oh, Lord, I, I want to conduct myself for your glory in this situation. Or you have that. All right, but we got a third movement here. Look at this one. The creator of the universe that... He has no problem with the social embarrassment of wine. Or, to put it another way, he's going to manifest his glory by filling up what's empty. Watch him do it. Now, I like, and I like, again, the inflection when this was read. Uh, what, whatever he says, do it. <laughs> she just leaves it with him. And so, here is the, the movement. Jesus responds. Okay, that's, you see those water pots over there? Six of them. That's a lot of water in, in those pots. They were there. They were, pure, they were pots for water for purification. That it was a Jewish custom that had wandered a, a good way from the way in which these things were given in the Old Testament, which is a story in itself. I think it's a subplot here to the kind of the emptiness of Judaism and the loss of joy. And how Jesus often met grumps, the Grinches that stole Christmas, i.e. the Pharisees, who were <laughs> always wanting to come negatively on what Jesus was doing. Why are you here? Eating and drinking. Remember, that was an accusation that was made. John came in austerity. But you've come eating and drinking. How dare you? Ha. Well, what's going on here is that Jesus is by taking these empty water pots. I don't know the way Judaism was. It was empty. It had been emptied of the joy and that the law had been turned into a burden rather than a means of experiencing the delight in God and serving Him. But that's another story. Okay, but notice then, here's what he says. Fill these pots up. And I like this word, um, I know Justin likes this author. I'll hear Justin. This is what J.C. Ryle said on this point. He said, duties are ours, events are God's. It's ours to fill the water pots. It's Christ to make the water wine. <laughs> I like that. And so here is this action. Now, consider this miracle. This is wonderful. I feel so inadequate in getting this across. This is the creator of the universe standing there, masked as he were, as he was. Who is this? He's the one that called the universe into being. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being by him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus spoke it into being. And here he is. And there's water. And there's no wine. No problem. What did he do? Well, what he did is that he said a word. He spoke it. Now, I like this. Uh, I came across this in what I was reading. And this is the way that the nature of this miracle is described. Listen. The fact that our Lord started with water should not detract from the fact that it was a genuine miracle of creation. Our Lord took H. And turn it into C6H12O6, fructose, the sugar that you find in wine. And there was not only the direct creation of billions of carbon atoms, 
but also the arranging of all these atoms into highly complex molecules in wine. None can deny that it was sudden. And it happened. Now, I'm going to draft on that with another quote. I'm not very original, you notice. I just have to draft on what I find that helps me. And this is from my, my dear mentor. He's in his 90s now. Oh, he blessed us so much. Dr. Whitcomb in his book, The Early Earth, he references this. Early Earth, that's about Genesis. Ah, there, there is a connection. This is what he said. And I quote, He said, instantly transforming about 150 gallons of water into delicious wine. Wine is the end product of a long series of complex natural processes. Water from soil into the fruit of the grapevine, transforming water into the juices of grapes, grapes picked, juice squeezed out, sediments allowed to settle down. But Jesus, the Lord of creation, bypassed all these natural and human processes and created the end product with an appearance of history. Uh Uh-huh. I I have ongoing discussions with some friends. And recently I did have one. It was a little modest exchange on Facebook. Is that awful word? (laughs) Have to really measure yourself. But it ended up in a private email because, you know, you, did, you can only go so far in those public things. And it ended up in a private email. I mean, I know this gentleman. And he was wanting to... He, sad, he's a theistic evolutionist and uh, a believer. But... The, and, he, and he referenced an article that appeared in a magazine saying, well... What we know, and it took a poll for preachers and so forth. God tells us, we we can tell from the Genesis account, who created it. That's what's important. How? Don't get, don't worry about that. Let's listen to the scientists. They'll tell you about chemistry, molecular activities and creations and time, chance, that sort of thing. But I submit to you that what's happened here and that the creation of this wine out of water instantly, that Jesus, there's the who, who, Jesus, the creator of the universe. How? He spoke the word. It happened supernaturally. It happened suddenly. And it had that appearance of history. What did they say? Where did this wine come from? Did someone run down to the wine shelves at the grocery store? (laughs) They didn't have those. No, that this tells us that who was doing this. Now, oh, that's a good thought about what the Lord did. You know, he's got to be your hero. Have you met Jesus that way yet? These things unfold in life. And I'm finding as I go through the Gospels now, I come to tears in places that I didn't used to come to tears over. I think, what was wrong with me? (laughs) I'm looking at what Jesus did. And you know what's extraordinary about this? One of the things, he did this really quietly. Like people just said, whoa, we got wine here. This is saved the best, the last. And the servants knew, but it was intentionally, it was kind of a low-key Thing, you see some of the other miracles like that, and and I must insert this: Why did Jesus? Why did he purposely? Why did he purposely do such things low key? I mean, he didn't bring it. Oh, everybody, right here! Come ye, come ye, come ye, come ye! Watch me! See these six, these pots, all these gallons of water! Watch me! Boom! Wine! Wow! What a show! What a show! You should have sold tickets for this. None of that. Just quietly, he did it. And there was wine. And that really, that kept uh, the center of attention in some ways off of him and focused it on what the results would, were because of what he did. All right, let's look at this fourth movement here. 
in this glory. The creator of the universe now, and this is really the climax of the whole thing. The creator of the universe manifested his glory so that unbelievers would believe and believers would increase their faith. Ah, how do I know that? Well, I know the second part of that, that believers would increase their faith because it says in verse 11, you see that? Disciples believe. I don't think that's when they had their come to Jesus moment. I surrender all. You know, I'm now a believer. I'm a Christian. But I think what it means is that their confidence in Christ grew. It extended. It was incremental in this process over time where they were increasingly understanding who it was who was alongside of them day after day, week after week. All right, now let's look at this. Um, let's, let's examine. I'm notice that the surprise here, or the fact that, I should say, not a surprise, that John says, this is the first in the miracles. What? He's 30 years old. He's a little late to getting around to it, isn't he? Uh, in passing. There are these alleged miracles of the boy Jesus in the Apocryphal Gospels. Okay, that's quite a sentence here. Let me explain what I mean. It, it's become, um, I can't remember, I didn't, I didn't check it out, but they made a movie out of this sort of thing, like there are these Gospels that you can find, and you can find out these things about Jesus that you never knew. Woo! And, oh, they, it's all Apocryphal. It, that's what you call fake news. <laughs> that Jesus was not a superboy miracle worker. And that it says this is the beginning of signs. And that there had been 500 years since the last recorded miracle. You know, you say, whoa, whoa. I thought... Miracles are all over the place in the Bible. Some people want you to believe. They're everywhere. No, they're not. You take the span of time and the selectivity with which they are performed. We have just a handful of them in the Gospels. They're not all over the place. That really ensures, the rarity of them ensures the impact of them. Um, people, I, I can't get it. This is one of my get-me points that people say, Oh, did you see that? I was at the ball game and the bases were loaded. It was at the bottom of the ninth and there were two strikes. And, the, and he knocked one out of the park. It was a miracle. No, it wasn't. It's prov the providence of God. Understand, theologians, the difference between miracles and providence. Don't cheapen miracles. It's no less God. Oh, God, okay, we can't go into the theology of hitting home runs. But, okay, back to the point here. I, I don't think I'll linger on this. I've got some other things I want to be sure to get in. And, but there had been no miracles by Jesus for 30 years. Now, though, this miracle of it comes in a long line. Can I give you just a fast line on the miracles? There were creation miracles to which I've spoken, about which I've spoken. There were Exodus miracles. Elijah and Elisha miracles. Daniel, too, are recorded. Christ and the apostles, so they're along the way. That's, a, that's another kind of story. But this miracle is called a sign. Now let's be sure we get it. You actually, you have four words in the Gospels that are used to describe the, the, the miracle works of Christ. Uh, there is the word wonder. Occasionally you'll come across that word. That describes the effects on the witnesses. It's like, wow! All right, but then another word is used, power. That's the evidence of supernatural power. And then there's even another word that at first you wouldn't think it fits, a work. Well, it's a work because the ease, all you got to do is, he said, speaks the word and it happens. But then there is this word, sign, which is a different word. And it simply means that it's educational. Miracles have meaning. And that's, it has the meaning. That's the point that he's making. So the miracle of water to wine has significance beyond itself. And here it is. The disciples saw this and they came to realize that Jesus could transform a loss, 
a disappointment into occasion of, full, uh, of joy and fulfillment, transforming power. Do you think that might have sat somewhere on the bottom shelf of the mind? Somewhere. Because he's getting his men ready for ministry when he's not going to be around to do these things. Kind of things. And so he's getting, he's preparing them. They're learning something about him. He's a, he has transforming power. Now, what's going on here? What is the sign? I don't want to miss this. <laughs> that Jesus was announcing with this miracle, this sign miracle, the presence of the Messiah King, the creator of the universe. He's here! He's here! He's here! And also connect with this. This is a theme, we, we're working on this with our Monday morning men's class and going through the, uh, he will reign forever. And we're in the part of the Gospels now where we see how often the kingdom is associated with banquets. It's, I mean, the kingdom is like, it's a banquet. It's a good time. Talk about joy and such that the kingdom is described as like, also in Amos and in Joel, the kingdom is described as bringing an abundance of wine. Oh, I left something out. I tend intentionally because I, I just don't want to. I got to put it in part briefly. Yeah, I can do it. Some of you are sitting there thinking, well, wow. When I go to Publix and I go down the line aisle, aren't, good night, aren't those things long? <laughs> and, oh, they tell me that. I'm going to talk about this in my class, so I'm going to stop it at that. Is this, is this wine? I'll just put it this way to you. This is not Welch's grape juice that Jesus turned the water into. Uh, now, you want to talk about well, how much alcohol is in it? I even walked through the... Somebody may have seen me doing this, but I was down walking down the line, and I was just checking out all the different kinds of wine from Spain, from, from Argentina, and all the stuff. I just got interested in the labels. And uh, the alcohol content and all that kind of thing. I just got curious. Well, I'm going to leave that hanging. Okay, let's. <laughs> but I, I am not convinced this is grape juice. Is uh, okay. I'll leave it there. What's happening here? That this was a festive, happy occasion, and here is Jesus Christ, who is being appropriately manifested. The hour of his glorification. I don't want to forget that. It's going to climax in the cross. Father, the hour has come. I'm skipping way ahead now. Way on down into John. Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that the son may glorify thee. What this miracle does is that it sets forth the creative power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I saw this. I got to say this and I can't take credit for it. I wish I had thought of it. Is that the water saw its creator and blushed. <laughs> Isn't that good? <laughs> blushed. I like that. Because this was the display of what? Here was the king. I got off on all that because I was trying to say this banquet. This picture of the kingdom is a banquet. And the king is coming. And it's a festive occasion. Look forward to it. It's a time of great cheer and enjoyment. Well, here we are. This glory. This glory. Transforming power. Transforming power. I heard this account uh, going down the road. It was last month. I heard this account. And I want to tell you about it. And the account was, uh, this man was giving his, the story of his conversion. And, boy, it really, it really got my attention. It, it starts out, that this young man grew up in a home. He had an overbearing father who had a hair-triggered temper and who was abusive. Could never please his father. And it wore him down. And the, the young man was a pretty good student, had a good mind. And, and his father even told him that as he got on up to college age, he said, you'll never amount to anything. That's not what you want to hear from your dad. And it just got to the place where, and combined with the fact that he was trying to find meaning in life. Is there any meaning to life? 
like the song I was reminded of this week. I don't have time to exegete it, but some of you old-timers remember it. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? Meaning. And he was looking for meaning. Well, it came to the point where he got into such depression and despair, he went into a chemistry lab and he went to directly to the to the, the noted poisons that were in there, and he poured them into a canister. He took them and he took them home. And having mixed them together, went into the bathroom. No one, mother and father, weren't there. Just some servants off in another part of the house. And he took this potion and he drank it. I mean, suicide seemed to be his only hope for this, <laughs> some hope. and But the, the solution had the effect that it was not uh, allowing him to process it in his, and the water it kept, it, it constrained the water release in his body. He passed out. And the next thing he knew, he was in a hospital bed. And his mother was there, and the doctors didn't give him much time to live. He had destroyed himself internally so much. And it was in that time that a gentleman came in that he had heard on radio singing. He was a soloist, I guess, and known for a song, one song, There Is a Bomb in Gilead, and that he handed his mother, his mother was in the room, this man handed his mother a little red New Testament. You see, it's like Gideon New Testament. And she began to read it to him. And she read and came to the place, she, for some reason she ended up reading in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And this, it was a, it was a moment. It was a supernatural, sudden and supernatural. He put his trust in Christ. It came to him. There would be where he would find his meaning. And that he, in five days, he walked out of that hospital. A new man. And actually he went on into further training and he had such a great mind that he was very effective in declaring the gospel. And then it so happened, though his mother had deceased, but yet his father was still alive, that father who had made life miserable for him. His father was in a service where he was preaching, and there was an invitation, and his father came forward to receive Christ as his Savior. And as he went on to tell the story, I'm short and leaving out a lot. It was a fascinating story how his father was really dramatically changed. Trans, talk about transforming power. And he said, I'm just telling you what the, the, the son, an adult now, said that he never saw his father lose his temper again. Now that, that's, that's extraordinary. But this transforming power of Jesus Christ to take a life and take it and make it new. It's wonderful. Oh, I didn't mention that man. It's Ravi Zacharias. And God has put his hand upon him and used him in a tremendous way as a, an apologist and as an author. But I say this in closing. That I said first, you know, remember I said that this miracle increased the faith of the disciples. Maybe I've got a dear friend here this morning somewhere here. And you have got some kind of water but no wine situation. Uh, what I mean is that there is something going on in your life and you're really having a fit, a problem, a difficulty in seeking to deal with it. It may be a temper. It may be anger. It could be, maybe it's, maybe it's greed. Maybe you just keep getting yourself into financial situations that just they're deep, deep, dark holes because you're just always looking for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And I, or maybe it's, I, maybe it's just the, the powerful pull of sexual lust. It's just got you around the throat. 
And you, you can't get near a computer screen without going crazy. And uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I've missed thousands of things here. But I'm telling you, to see that Jesus Christ has transforming power. And don't you love him? <laughs> don't you love him? And you know what? He's at the right hand of the Father praying for you right now, if you're a believer. He is. He's with you. He's in your corner. He wants to bring you through this. But I'll say this finally. That there may be very well, there's someone here. And uh, you maybe are somewhat amused by this story. It, 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 is, it is that. But you've never come to put your faith and trust in Christ. You know, John says that this is why his gospel has been written. That they may believe that you're the Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And that you may have life in His name. Life. You think you're living. Could I speak directly to you? I love you and I want to tell you this. If I didn't tell you this, I wouldn't love you. That you think you're finding life in whatever, something you've created, some dream, some fantasy, some, I don't know, maybe some chemical. But Jesus said, He's the life. He's the life. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, I pray that now that, oh, Lord, this word's come to us so clearly, at least I hope it has, Lord. You'll have to, what's not been clear, you will clear it up. But, Lord, you are a Savior, transforming power. If there's one here without Jesus Christ, I pray that he or she, this will be the moment, the moment. They'll look up to you and say, oh, Lord Jesus, I believe I'm a sinner I deserve nothing but eternal punishment. And I want to know you. And I receive the gift of eternal life right now. Work it, Lord. Work it in hearts. Thank you, Father, for who you are and your love for us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, he's beautiful. He's wonderful. He's strong. He's magnificent. He's wise. He died for us and he's coming again. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.